the people who live on the coasts need to make their living and they need to be successful in order to get them behind you know preserving the environment on the coast as well there are many many win-wins for both the people in those communities the fishermen and the environment and our goal has been to identify those win-wins and to work with the community to to fund them and to make them happen From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different, sharing stories of certified B Corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. I'm Ben Marine, and in this final episode of Season 1, we reached out to a global brand that is having a local impact right here in our home state of Maine, Luke's Lobster. Luke's Lobster works with local fishermen to supply their restaurants all around the world with traceable, sustainable seafood. With over 30 locations around the globe, including Portland, Maine, Boston, New York, Chicago, Miami, San Francisco, Tokyo, and more, Luke's Lobster is dedicated to quality seafood that protects our oceans and the way of life of those in our coastal communities. On September 23rd, I hopped on the phone with co-founder and chief marketing officer Ben Conniff, and he answered all my questions about Luke's Lobster, B Corp certification, and protecting Maine's coast. So my name is Ben Conniff. I am a co-founder and the chief innovation officer at Luke's Lobster. We are an 11-year-old company now. We're actually coming up on our anniversary. Our, our first restaurant opened uh, October 1st of 2009. And we are uh, an authentic lobster shack and now seafood production company and seafood buying and distribution company. That's We started as a restaurant, but we're now vertically integrated back to purchasing directly from fishermen and handling seafood throughout the process from the dock to your plate. We we really exist because my partner, Luke, is a third-generation fisherman from Maine. And after college, he had a brief stint in finance, living in New York, and just couldn't find a lobster roll that properly reminded him of home um, or one that was affordably priced. Uh, his father was a lobsterman turned lobster dealer and then processor. It was the first lobster processor in the state of Maine. And he was able to connect us to the fishermen to get us the best lobster down in New York City, which is where our first restaurant was. So Luke and I met on Craigslist when he was looking for a partner so he could keep his day job for the first few months. Uh, That was pretty wild. Uh, We got the restaurant open in 30 days after signing the lease and uh, just cranked from there on. Uh, We started expanding, opening more restaurants, And then in 2013, we decided to build our own lobster production facility in Saco um, and to start really taking our entire supply chain into our own hands. Um, That was a huge, huge move for us to get closer to the fishermen and be more in control of our seafood. And then in 2018, in January, we became a certified B Corp, which was kind of the next big milestone for us. 
Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I can't believe you all met via Craigslist. That's incredible. What, how, I'm just so curious. How did that happen? I had been working in media, various internships and kind of entry-level editorial assistant jobs, but hadn't found a landing place. I tried freelancing and I just found that I always wanted to close my computer and cook. So I started looking for restaurant jobs on Craigslist. And I couldn't even get an interview for like a counter job because I didn't have the experience that that people were looking for in the New York City restaurant scene. Then I stumbled across a guy looking to start a lobster shack. And I had spent a fair amount of time visiting Maine as a kid and particularly hanging out around the Five Islands Lobster Co-op. And I just I loved everything about Maine and about lobster. So I I shot him an email on a kind of Hail Mary. And he wanted to meet up and we got talking and we really clicked. And literally within a, a couple of days, I was signed on to, to get this restaurant open. That is so cool. That is so cool. Um, I know a huge part of your business and the values you founded it on are investing in coastal communities. And so for folks that are less aware about issues facing coastal communities, can you explain a little bit for us some of the challenges those communities face and how Luke's Lobster is different from other lobster harvesting companies. Yeah, if you look at historically the way fishermen and and dealer and end consumer relationships work, the fishermen come back to to a dock, they're told what they're gonna get paid uh, for their their product, and then it disappears off into the ether and they have no connection to where it goes how many people touch it along the way or what it ultimately gets sold for. So usually, you know, the vast majority of the margin in that eventual transaction with the consumer doesn't go back to the fishermen. It goes to all of the hands that are kind of touching that seafood along the way. It's a worse experience for the fishermen because they don't take home as much. And it's a worse experience for the end consumer because the product isn't as good because of all those hands that touched it. And they have no idea where it came from, what its history was, or, or that it was handled properly in the process. So our goal is to cut out as many middlemen as possible and to try to be that one connective tissue between the fishermen and the end consumer to deal transparently with the fishermen so they know when they go out to fish what they're going to be paid, that they're going to be paid promptly. There's not going to be anybody who just doesn't show up with the check when it's due, um, which is a a problem that's rampant in the seafood industry. Um, And then they know that when we put it in a lobster roll and put it on a plate in front of one of our guests, that we're going to talk about the fishermen that caught it here in Portland or out in Cranberry Island or in Tenants Harbor or in Port Clyde and that that guest is going to have an appreciation for all the hard work that went into bringing that lobster to their plate and that that really makes a difference both financially to a fisherman's bottom line and I think psychologically to feel part of a broader community of people supplying the food and and people consuming the food. And that's really what we're trying to achieve. And how do you find or select the fishermen that you partner with? 
That's a great question. We have built very close relationships with groups of fishermen at specific docks over time. A big way that that started was Luke's father, Jeff's reputation in the industry and the folks that he has worked with in the past and and really created uh, a reputation for the Holden family and that family name of, of honest and transparent dealing over decades. So that opened a lot of doors and a lot of conversations for us with fishermen who, you know, wanted a buyer that they could trust, who was not going to just not need to take their lobster on any given day, or just not be able to get there with a check on any given day, because that's, that's not the way that that family has done business over long periods of time. So that has been really helpful. And then I think just building on the reputation that, that we've built and, you know, fishermen love to talk to other fishermen and, you know, we, we work with, with guys who are really enthusiastic about being a part of the, the system that we're trying to create. We work with a lot of co-ops. We're big believers in the cooperatively owned lobster dock model. So whether it's Tenants Harbor, Cranberry Island, uh, Friendship, Port Clyde, we really enjoy buying from uh, docks where all the fishermen have skin in the game and, and have a stake in, in the outcomes for, for that dock's business. So that has kind of helped create a, a little network of co-ops that we buy from up and down the coast. That is really cool. And you also have a really cool fund called uh, the Keeper Fund. How did how did that come? What exactly is that and how did it come to be? The Keeper Fund is really a, a distillation for us of a lot of the philanthropic work that we had been doing over the years. So we're very interested in both conserving our coastal environment up here in Maine and around the country and around the world. But we also understand that the people who live on the coasts need to make their living and they need to be successful in order to get them behind, you know, preserving the environment on the coast as well. So there are many, many win-wins for both the people in those communities, the fishermen and the environment. And our goal has been to identify those win-wins and to work with the community to, to fund them and to make them happen. So a couple of years ago, we decided that rather than just kind of writing a check or volunteering time when it made sense for one individual instance or another, we would create a kind of sub entity with its own mission and its own name that helped us communicate this mission. So the Keeper Fund was what we came up with. It's a reference to what you call a lobster that's the perfect size. It's not undersized, it's not oversized, which are both sustainability regulations in the industry. So it's a bit of a nod to the sustainable practices that fishermen have voluntarily adopted over time and are now enshrined in in law. Um, And it's also kind of a reference to the concept of of, of a keeper, of, of wanting to keep our environment uh, clean and beautiful and healthy and wanting to keep our coastal communities healthy as well. Awesome. And I, I think to that end, you're also involved in some really cool projects that 
as you mentioned, aim to protect the health of coastal waterways, cleaning shorelines, getting over. I mean, you guys have had over 100 volunteers involved and so much more. Those are all things that when I hear that, I think of more nonprofits and less businesses that do that. And so I just think it's incredible that you're doing that as a business. How do you balance those projects while running the business? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, we look at our we look at our, our core values in this business as, as taste and transparency and purpose. And the first two really predominantly have to do with how we do business business. You know, taste is about making sure that we're always serving the best lobster in the world and other seafood now that we've begun to diversify. Um, transparency is about those transparent dealings with fishermen and all of our suppliers and stakeholders and then being transparent with our guests. Purpose really encompasses the importance of thinking beyond business and achieving a broader good that that goes outside the boundaries of just what your day-to-day is at work. And I think that's always been part of the soul of the company and part of the soul of our broader stakeholder community. And it's what it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things that makes everybody who works at Luke's passionate about getting up in the morning and coming here. Um, not just that their day-to-day creates a benefit, but that by supporting and helping to grow this company, they're providing opportunity for that company to go out there and, and generate generate these these further external net positives. So if that's doing ocean cleanups and island cleanups and yes we do that in our in our urban centers where we have like you know active young bases of of liberal environmentalists but we also go out to Creehaven Island and do it with fishermen because they are even more concerned with the, the cleanliness of their ocean that they depend on every day as you know you know, young big city uh, liberal environmentalists in New York, Philly, or DC. So, you know, that's an activity that is really great because it, again, reinforces that sense of there being a broader community that touches the ocean and touches the ocean's bounty, no matter what your what your background is or, or where you where you sit in the world. But then there's a more scientific element to it too. So, working with the Island Institute and Bigelow Labs and and Atlantic Sea Farms to help scientifically understand the positive effects that kelp farming has on the the surrounding area in terms of reducing ocean acidification. Like we we like to get in the weeds on on the science of, of that as well, because what we're ultimately looking for is, you know, how can we find ultimate solutions that are going to help the fishermen make more money because now they're farming kelp at the same time as they're lobstering. And they're going to make their own product more valuable because that lobster is going to be healthier because the kelp is there in the water column. And they're going to make the ocean cleaner, the ecosystem healthier and overall, you know, benefit the environment in a very real way. That's sort of, that's sort of the dream. And, you know, it's about understanding the science of it, and then being able to turn around and communicate what that means for benefiting all the stakeholders. That's so cool. And I'm actually really glad you brought up kelp because there was this really interesting stat on your site um, that I'm going to totally own. I don't fully understand what it means. I'm hoping you can help me wrap my brain around it. Uh, You've measured carbon, and I don't even know if I'm going to say this right. You've measured carbon 
sequestration power of 13,000 feet of kelp. What is exa- what exactly does that mean and and why should people want to know about it? So carbon sequestration means you are pulling carbon in this case out of the ocean. Um, but it's also it also can be used if you talk about, you know, planting trees as a carbon offset because the tree is taking carbon in. Um, and that's overall helping, you know, reduce the impact of carbon on climate. So in this instance, uh, the kelp is pulling carbon out of the water. The excess carbon in our atmosphere is also creating an excess of carbon in the ocean. And what that does is it makes the ocean more acidic. That ocean acidification in turn can have a lot of negative effects on the ecosystem, including on the strength of shells for bivalves specifically, and then some some lesser understood negative effects potentially on lobsters and, and their reproductive habits as well. All of the negative aspects of, of ocean acidification are not fully known, but we know there's a lot of them uh, and it is a big deal. So by planting kelp, you're able to actually fix some of that carbon, pull it out of the ocean, put it into the kelp. Um, so what we were able to do is work with our institute and these other partners to uh, help fund the scientific measurement devices that studied the effects on ocean acidification for that amount of kelp. And, and also looked at if you farmed mussels right next to that kelp, what were the uh, you know, what were the changes on the shell strength of mussels that were farmed next to kelp versus mussels that were farmed elsewhere? Oh wow, that is so cool! And I and I think it's such an important point because so often when we hear about climate change, we or it, at least it, it seems like the headlines in the news are always about air, but you don't hear it so much about how it impacts the ocean per se. And so I think that's a really, and especially here in Maine, it's such an important point. You also started the Jonah Crab Fishery Improvement Project. Is that part of the Keeper Fund or a separate thing? And and can you share with us like what maybe makes that different? Yeah, that was separate. And that was a project that uh, my, my partner, Luke's brother, or sorry, my partner, Brian, who is also Luke's brother, worked on with our VP of, of seafood operations here, Ben, uh, different pen, but it was done in partnership with um, with Delhaes and with um, a few other really helpful organizations. And the premise of it was really Jonah crab, a delicious crab that we serve in our crab rolls every day. It's always been kind of a an incidental catch in a lobster trap. People didn't used to go fish for Jonah crab. It's sort of like it would show up in your lobster trap and you would either throw it back or if you thought you could sell it, you would keep it, you'd bring it home and, and maybe sell it. But there was never a big market for, for Jonah crab. It was very much an underutilized species. So there wasn't really a lot of concern with ever overfishing it because it wasn't, just wasn't that popular. Uh, then in, in the last decade, Jonah crab has started to be recognized for how amazing, delicious, sweet, tender. I could go on and on. Um, and it became a, a, you know, a more popular uh, species. And suddenly people started to wonder, you know, there are guys going out now that are going just specifically to fish for Jonah crab. Is it possible that we could overfish this species? And that became an immediate concern for us. So 
we worked with all these partners and with a, a large group of fishermen to take some of the amazing sustainability concepts that have worked in the lobster industry, maximum size, minimum size, throwing back egg bearing females, and create rules for the Jonah crab fishery as well that everyone would agree to and that would uh, then be enforced. And by doing that, we were able to then have a much greater level of confidence that we wouldn't be out there overfishing Jonah crab and that population would thrive in the same way that the lobster population has in the, in the last several decades. That's great. I love that it's preemptive too, that it's not waiting for there to be a problem to fix it, but actually thinking ahead and, and seeing that curve. That's, that's really, really great. Well, we serve, we serve shrimp. Um, we used to serve main shrimp and the main shrimp fishery was, you know, completely overfished and it's been shut down since 2013. Um, so we've lost something that's a delicacy here. And, you know, now we have to buy it from a sustainable fishery in Quebec. Um, so we saw that and we saw it with, uh, with sea urchin, you know, a few decades ago, Mainers saw sea urchins as pests and didn't know what to do with them. And then, then realized there was this great Japanese market for sea urchin and we fished the hell out of them and now they're gone. Sea urchin haven't recovered. So we've seen many times in the past, you know, people think this isn't a big deal and, and then they don't really realize it until it's too late. Wow. That's huge. That's, that is really, really huge. Um, pivoting a little bit to, to B Corp land. I'm curious, when did you first start hearing about B Corps? I think we first started hearing about it, thinking about it. Whenever that big New Yorker profile about B Corp came out. So maybe 2014 would be a guess. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was definitely years before we actually did it. And my sister, who was running our compliance at the time, was really keen on doing it. And uh, our marketing team was really keen on doing it. But it took a few years for us to understand what the process looked like and why it was worth doing. Um, and then once we decided to do it, it, it took you know, the better part of a year to actually make it happen. So that's how we landed it actually getting certified at the start of 2018. What do you think was the most challenging part once you started to actually dive into the B impact assessment? Like did you, where you already were doing so much great community work and, and environmental work, was it easy to just check those boxes or were there pieces where like, okay, wait, we really got to revamp some of what we do. It was, uh, it was really easy to check the boxes and then when they came back and said, okay, now show me all the paperwork that proves all those boxes that you checked, that was the hard part. Uh, because the thing about B Corp is, you know, the fact that you happen to do something right now isn't enough. There has to be a written policy behind it that's signed by people in positions of authority. There, uh, you know, there has to be tracking mechanisms and measurement mechanisms to ensure that it's working. So all these things that were either baked into our philosophy or just things that we did kind of as a, you know, as a matter of course, uh, that didn't actually count for much until we went back over, retraced our steps and actually figured out how to put it all on paper, prove it, measure it, 
And that's how we wound up, you know, probably going from 120 points when we first checked the, the boxes to 80.1 points, which is, you know, the minimum is 80 on our eventual assessment because it's a, you know, it's, it's a battle for a, for a small company that has done things very informally over, you know, at that point, the, the eight or nine years we'd existed to suddenly formalize everything in like a more rigid written way. We, we didn't have those kind of corporate tendencies. So that was, uh, that was the biggest challenge for sure. Were there parts of the assessment that you guys like, oh, yes, I'm so glad that they asked these questions because now we're thinking about this thing we never would have even thought about or any other kind of positives that came out of working through the assessment? There definitely were. I would say the biggest positives have come after certification as we've thought about how to increase our score above 80.1. So uh, there's been a lot of great work that we've been able to do around employee engagement surveys and reporting out on the results and making concrete changes based on the results. Uh, similarly, stakeholder surveys outside of the organization. So how can we better collect and organize data from all of our fishermen for you know, their opinions on, on how well you know, we've acted as a buyer for them and what more they would like to see. And doing that has really helped us with you know, retention and engagement with our employees and, and also with our fishermen, because we might have made, as an example for employees, we might have made a decision about what new benefits to offer based on what we assume was important to our employees. But then we did an engagement survey and part of that we asked, how would you rank the importance of your current benefits and these potential new benefits? And the results were not what we expected. And so that really guided our ability to, to make decisions and, and then to back those up when we announced them on you know, specific survey results. Um, do you have any advice maybe for folks that are in a similar spot where they're like, oh yeah, actually surveys would really help us. I also ask partly because as we're working through our own assessment, that's something that's come up for us. We're like, oh, we really want to implement surveys with clients and with staff how how did you i mean i i imagine it'd be especially hard for your business having to work with like fishermen that are you know it's i don't think it would be as easy as maybe putting together a google form how, what advice would you have for folks trying to start that survey process i think my first piece of advice would be don't wait for it to be perfect so you know if you have if you have you know google forms or google surveys and you have five questions that you're really interested in for people's anonymous responses to, just do it. You'll learn most from your successes and failures when you start trying um, in a, you know, in a, in a small scale. So, so bite off what you can bite off initially and then build from there. Uh, you know, we're lucky we have, and what does HRIS stand for? Human resource information system, but like, um, a system that keeps all your employee paperwork. We run payroll through it. We do documentation through it. And that also had a survey system. So it's, it's easy for our HR team to push a survey out to all of our employees and, and get aggregated data back in a, in a way that's uh, easy to read. So 
if you're a company that has an HRIS, then then check and see if they have a survey module. But if you don't, you know, the, the Google product is free and it's it's pretty darn easy. So give it a shot and, uh, and you might learn things pretty quickly. I'm curious, do you have um, an HRIS that you'd recommend if folks are maybe looking for one? Well, um, I would, so we currently use Paycom and we had burned through a couple before then and Paycom has stuck for a few years. So I'm definitely not a content expert there, but uh, if it wasn't working well, I'd, I'd be hearing about it. Uh, so I think our team is, is pretty happy with Paycom. You know, those are really not one size fits all systems. And uh, every organization thinks about things a little differently. So, um, so you know, it might not work for everybody, but it's been working for us pretty well. Sweet. I'm curious, have you had much collaboration with other B Corps? And if so, who and, and what did that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So collaboration with other B Corps, I think, is probably ranks among my top three reasons to be a B Corp. We actually certified because I sat down with a guy from United by Blue in 2017. Uh, they're an outdoorsy apparel company that cleans up a pound of trash from the oceans for every product that they sell. So they're super mission aligned with Luke's and a lot of the trash cleanups we've done, we've done together with them. We've also done partnerships. We had a special salad, we called the two flannel salad. Um, we got a bunch of flannels for the team from United by Blue. And then this is our winter warmer salad. And for every one of those sold, we committed to cleaning up a pound of trash. And we did those cleanups together. It was a lot of fun. Um, but they're a great company. They're based in Philly. They created this concept called Blue Friday uh, that my wife and I have done for the last five years, probably, where you, um, instead of going to shopping on Black Friday, you go out and you clean trash from your local river or lake or, or ocean. And uh, it's I, I proposed to my wife after cleaning trash uh, one of those days. So um, they're a great company. Really recommend checking them out. Um, my wife now subsequently works for Allagash. We do a ton of partnerships with Allagash. In fact, they've actually stepped up and contributed uh, alongside Luke's to um, together donate a dollar to the Keeper Fund for every Allagash white that we sell out of Luke's Lobster. Um, and so they were there, like they were there for a lot of those cleanups as well. And they helped us to fund some of the, um, some of the other research projects that we've done. We work closely with Cabot very frequently. Uh, we use their cheddar cheese in our lobster grilled cheese. We use their butter in all of our Northeast locations for our lobster rolls. They provide the cheese for the lobster mac and cheese that we sell in our restaurants and, and now are just launching in Whole Foods this week. They're a great partner. We, uh, we actually work with Sir Kensington's a lot, the, um, the condiment company who we serve their ketchup with our French fries. Um, we use some of their mayos on some of our special rolls. Uh, and we've, we've actually done a lot of fun marketing together. They have a magazine called Sandwich, uh, and they made their second issue of Sandwich uh, all about the lobster roll. They put Luke's dad on the cover, which is a lot of fun. So, you know, just, just so many. It's, it's 
D Corp is such a door opener for, you know, friends of the Patagonian provisions guys through B Corp because, you know, we sold their beer and some of their, some of their tin muscles out in San Francisco. You know, if you let me go on forever, I'll, I'll come up with a bunch more. We buy wind energy through Inspire, which is a B Corp. Um, we're working on solar energy up here with Revision. It's just like, there's so many great companies out there and I just want to work with all of them. It's, you know, it's awesome. That's, that is so awesome. I'm curious, how do you find those partnerships? Like, do folks come and reach out to you or do you actively go out and find them or is it more organic, like just kind of bump into each other? It's all the above. I feel like, especially now, so we launched a direct-to-consumer website recently. And uh, so we're shipping lobster and other main seafood direct-to-consumers all over the U.S. now. Uh, so it's definitely changed our marketing strategy. And I find myself just you know, virtually knocking on doors of B Corps pretty frequently to ask if they want to, you know, do some marketing content together or do a giveaway. And, you know, I'll just hit, hit up their contact form or I'll try to find somebody on LinkedIn who works there. Like we're talking to Haptic Lab, which is a B Corp quilt company right now. And a friend of mine and Liz's works there. So we're going to do a giveaway uh, for one of these awesome quilts and some lobster rolls. Um, and the same thing, like our contact form will frequently get incoming from, from other B Corps. Like, hey, I have a great product that would work well on your website. Or, you know, I, I offer a, a service that I think could be really helpful for you on a software perspective. Or it's it's really just B Corp is like a, a code word uh, where you might delete a, a pitch otherwise. And you see there a B Corp and you make sure you read it and you respond. That's so cool. That's really, really cool. Um, I'm curious, what have been some of your favorite moments in this journey of launching and running Luke's Lobster? Um, some of my favorite moments. I mean, opening day 2009 was a favorite. We had a team of maybe eight people and it's a tiny restaurant, so we can only fit probably four at a time. Luke's dad was there uh, just making lobster rolls and and. We had 500 people come through that day and the line out the door and uh, none of us, none of us had any idea what we were doing. So, so that was fun. Like being a 24 year old and having the kind of energy I had back then and just, just making lobster rolls and seeing smiling people never forget that day. But I also think that, you know, opening the seafood company here in Maine the first time 2013, we actually, the first thing we did was shrimp. That was the last ever main shrimp season and we didn't really have any employees. So it was just a, a bunch of us up here cooking and peeling shrimp ourselves and figuring out, you know, we, we worked with a, a great scientist named Jason Bolton from the university of Maine who helped us understand our, all of our food safety and HACCP practices and get our paperwork together. And, you know, it was really something that we, we built by hand from scratch and a lot of the folks who were there that first day are still at our seafood company right now and moved up into leadership positions, but a lot of pride. Uh, and, you know, now just to see both of those situations being really thrown together with a lot of heart and, and like less than half as much knowledge and to see how, you know, professionally and smartly and well run they are and how they're able to really create, you know, the nearest thing to a perfect product. I think what, what I love 
most about this business. Like I never saw myself as a big business person and growth for the sake of growth doesn't appeal to me like the slightest little bit. But what I've loved is that growing as a business has deepened our commitment to our values and our purpose and really helped us achieve them much, much better. And that has converted me, at least in, in our own instance, to a person who who does enjoy growing a business. Um, because as long as you're reinvesting more and more into, into the reasons that you started the business in the first place, it can be incredibly rewarding. Which I think really speaks to kind of the overarching message of B Corp, right? It's just, it's all about doing, using business as a tool for good and not necessarily grow, grow, grow. Yeah. So that that's, yeah, that's really, really cool. Oh, uh, what advice would you give to businesses that are thinking about becoming a B Corp or are maybe just ankle deep in the B impact assessment? My first advice to that question is always start putting stuff on paper. Anytime you're doing something good, don't, you know, don't just do it. Remember to make it a policy that's long lasting and can't disappear overnight. So, you know, in the, in the wake of, you know, being much more attuned to the Black Lives Matter movement this summer than we regrettably have in the past, you know, I've, I've started reaching out to a lot of black owned businesses to see how we can purchase and sell their products and how we can better support them. So what you need to do if you want to be a B Corp is not just do that. You need to write a sourcing policy that says, you know, we, whenever possible, will look to source products and ingredients from businesses owned by, you know, women, minorities, people of color and, and disadvantaged populations. And you enshrine that into how you do business. So when people say like, Black lives don't just matter for two weeks after George Floyd dies. They matter all the time. And so rather than just doing a token, like buying something from a black owned business in June, you change your sourcing policy for the long haul to, to try to do that continuously. And that's, that's a big B Corp thing. Like think about how you translate your best instincts in the moment to long-term policies on paper. Do you have any favorite black owned businesses that you've worked with come just kind of coming out of that recent, more recently? So what, what we're working on now is conversations with some of the Somali owned cooperative farms here in Maine. So uh, our goal is to, uh, to begin sourcing ingredients for the restaurant down here in Portland uh, from those farms, obviously not all of our ingredients and, you know, maybe not in every season, but when we can to, to work with them to, uh, just to start sourcing and supporting those farms. I think that's super important, uh, from, from the perspective of our business here in Maine, we are launching, uh, I believe very soon, beers from Harlem Brewery down in New York into our New York locations, you know, so that we're looking at a local business who's, who's been there and, and trying to succeed and helping them get exposure to, you know, to our guest base and also just benefiting ourselves from having a delicious new beer on our, on our beer list. So, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely uh, a piece by piece approach and, it's been a little more difficult based on 
the fact that most of our restaurants have been closed due to COVID. So like there's this amazing looking pie maker uh, called Justice of the Pies in Chicago. And all I want to do is buy her pies and sell them out of Luke's Lobster Chicago. Luke's Lobster Chicago is closed. It's in like downtown in the loop and every office there is abandoned. So there's a lot of plans that are in the works, but we haven't been able to pull the, pull the trigger on because we're not actually open and functioning yet. Yeah. How has, I mean, obviously COVID has had a huge impact, um, especially on, you know, businesses dealing in food and beverage, right? How have you guys been able to, to survive this bananas time? We were very fortunate that we started our production company in 2013 and that as part of that, we built a grocery business beyond just the restaurant business. So, you know, I think I could say that if, if we weren't selling lobster tails and lobster meat and other products to Whole Foods and Mom's Organic Market and Fresh Time in the Midwest and, and other you know, supermarkets, I don't. I don't know how we would still be here. Um, having that facility and having that business up and running is also what allowed us to launch the direct-to-consumer website. So it's been huge for us to kind of make up some of the lost business from the restaurants through our website. And it's also allowed us to keep buying from fishermen at closer to the rate that we had planned to previously and to diversify what we can buy from our fishermen. So, you know, folks that go out and and catch lobster for us are also fishing for bluefin tuna right now. They were dragging for scallops in the late winter, early spring. They were catching halibut in May and June. Um, There's just a wealth of, of other things that they do to diversify their income. And we hadn't been able to really support them all that much on those because we didn't serve those in our restaurants. Now with our website, we are a marketplace to the entire country for all sorts of wonderful Maine seafood products. So we've diversified with our own fishermen. We've reached out to some other amazing businesses here that also needed access to a different market since the restaurants and casinos and cruise lines of the world disappeared. So we've sold oysters on our site from Georgetown Oyster Co-op. And we're actually, you know, we're out there talking to more and more other brands and companies along the coast that need need a better way to, to move product that they're having trouble selling during COVID. So all of these things have they've kept us going financially and they've really buoyed us from a morale perspective, a purpose perspective, and and help keep our team going and, and passionate. And, you know, we, we had to, we had to furlough a, a huge number of our restaurant teammates specifically, and some of our office teammates. And many of those people are still furloughed because we still have half of our locations closed and the ones that are open have a tiny fraction of the crew. So, you know, everything that we can do to get this business back closer to capacity and get people back to work and keep people engaged and, and working towards our mission, you know, we're going to do. That's great. And I'm curious for folks that are listening and they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. And you stand for everything that I believe in and all the things. And I just want to buy all the seafood from you. 
where can they where do they go where, where can they do that can they are, are there some restaurants that are open where they can do curbside pickup or is it all do they just go to the grocery store or do they order online or how, what's the best way for people to get get the goods there there are a lot of ways to get the goods uh, some of our restaurants are open the one right here in portland is the only one that actually never closed it transferred to takeout delivery only in uh, March. And then um, come June, it opened for outdoor only dining. Now it's got a little bit of indoor dining as well. And then, you know, we have one going on two of our Boston locations back open, uh, about half a dozen open in New York, um, a couple down in DC, one in Philly. Uh, out in San Francisco, we're back open and down in Miami, we're back open. So there is an opportunity there. You know, most of them are takeout delivery only and probably will be through the winter time. But um, but they're there. They're making lobster rolls for you. And then really the easiest way for most people is to go to lukeslobster.com and get into our online shop. And from there, you can order lobster you can order tuna you can order uh scallops you can order halibut lobster mac and cheese lobster bisque kind of like really the broadest selection um and that will continue to grow and you can ship that anywhere in the 48 states or if you're here in portland you can just pick it up at portland pier for free so get on there you know order two pounds of tuna steaks for yourself to pick up at the pier order a four lobster roll kit to to send to your aunt in Nevada who used to live on the East coast and really misses it and hasn't been able to get good seafood and forever in a day. So yeah, lukesloster.com and, and, and you can find information about all the other the restaurants and whatnot too. You can also, you can go down to Whole Foods anywhere in the country almost, and you'll find in the frozen seafood section, you'll find our lobster meat, lobster tails, and within the next couple of weeks, lobster bisque, lobster mac and cheese, and join a crowd class. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, I have links to all the various businesses Ben named in this episode in our show notes, which you can find at responsiblydifferent.com, including where you can go to order Luke's lobster directly. And while this concludes season one of Responsibly Different, fear not, there will be many more seasons to come and we will continue to document our journey towards our own B Corp certification at the Responsibly Different website, which will also include any resources we have come upon that we have found helpful. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. It helps more folks like yourself find this content. And if you have questions or suggestions for us, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at content at deergocollective.com. We're all in this together. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective, music composed by our own Kevin Oates. You can follow us on social media at Deergo Collective or visit our corner of the internet at deergocollective.com.